This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. In our second segment today, we're going to talk about the California Aggie. Apparently, its future hangs in the balance. Money is tight these days, we all know that, and it's especially tight in the UC system. And uh, and the Aggie, which has been around for dang near 100 years, is threatened, but stands to be salvaged by a vote of the student body at UC Davis if they will only agree to contribute $3 and change every quarter to helping the Aggie. Aggie Editor-in-Chief Elizabeth Orpina will be joining us in the second segment to talk a bit about that. But let us begin today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History. Now, a couple weeks back, we had kind of a snoozer day and kind of had to apologize for some of the events or non-events that took place on that date. But boy, today's different. Apparently, lots of stuff took place on February the 13th. Starting with February 13th in 1588, where, borrowing from both Ptolemy and Copernicus, the Danish astronomer Tycho Brahe outline his own idea for how the solar system works. He thought the sun and the moon revolved around the Earth, which aligns with Ptolemy, but that the reigning planets orbit the sun, which lines up with Copernicus. And although Tycho, or Tycho, is considered to be the last great pre-telescope astronomer, it goes to show you that even the great ones can drop the ball. And speaking of the heliocentric versus the geocentric theory of the solar system, which is not a segue that we use frequently. We would add that on February 13th in 1633, the Italian astronomer Galileo Galilei arrived in Rome for his trial before the Inquisition. He was accused of heresy for stating his belief that the Earth revolved around the Sun. And sadly for history, he was convicted by the Catholic Church of heresy, even though the Earth does revolve around the Sun, which apparently was of secondary importance in the legal matter. All right, on February 13th in 1689, William and Mary were proclaimed the joint sovereigns of Great Britain following Britain's glorious revolution, which drove James II from the throne. Speaking of Catholics, or at least secret Catholics or Catholic sympathizers, wherever you want to put it. At any rate, James II was given the boot, and uh, Britain established a new Bill of Rights that curtailed the power of the crown. Continuing on, February 13th in 1867, Johann Strauss premiered his Blue Danube Waltz at a public concert in Vienna, which is, as we all know, a hell of a piece of music. Red Letter Day in the world of science as well. February 13th, 1929, Scottish bacteriologist Alexander Fleming presents a paper to the Medical Research Club which describes his discovery of a mold that has begun to kill some bacterial cultures. Fleming's discovery led to the development of the first antibiotic, penicillin, for which he shared the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1945. Although I think you could definitely argue that it wasn't necessarily the first antibiotic. But let's not quibble. It was a hell of a thing. And we salute Alexander Fleming for his paying attention one day to the odd detail of the fact that the bacterial culture he'd grown in his Petri dish had some gaps in it, or a mold had come along, grown on the dish, and was killing the nearby bacteria. And that, of course, that observation changed everything. Although my understanding is it wasn't until other people figured out how to grow 
massive amounts of mold inside giant tanks that uh, they could gain enough penicillin to make it useful. And it turns out that uh, that technology of making large amounts of penicillin from mold was borrowed from the brewing industry, which had long been used to making other good stuff using fungi. All right, it's a bad day in military history. On this date in 1945, the most controversial episode in the Allied air war against Germany began when hundreds of British bombers loaded with incendiaries and high explosives descended upon Dresden, a historic city located in eastern Germany. Dresden was neither a war production city nor a major industrial center. And before this massive air raid, February 13th, it had not suffered a major Allied attack. By the 15th of February, the city was a smoldering ruin and an unknown number of civilians, somewhere between 35,000 and 135,000, were dead, making it what is probably the single most destructive bombing of the war. Surviving the bombing as a Nazi prisoner of war was Kurt Vonnegut, who would go on to write some memorable things about this terrible day. And speaking of bombing, on this same date in 1965, U.S. President LBJ approved the sustained bombing of North Vietnam. During the three-year campaign dubbed Operation Rolling Thunder, 640,000 tons of bombs were dropped and 900 U.S. aircraft were lost. What did this accomplish in the end? Well, not a whole lot. And finally, on February 13th in the year 2000, and this seems like it happened yesterday, the last original Peanuts comic strip appeared as a signed farewell from its originator, American cartoonist Charles M. Schultz, who lived over in Santa Rosa. Schultz had died the previous day of colon cancer. Of course, you'd be hard-pressed to know that Charles Schultz had passed away, given that Peanuts seems to live on in the daily papers. Our quote today is from Mark Twain, as they often are. Said Twain, man is the only animal that blushes, or needs to. Our quote today comes from novelist Gary Stengart, who said, Satire always benefits when evil and stupidity collide. And uh, we have to suppose he's right about that. Our joke of the day, well, actually, let's do several jokes today, and we haven't done proper jokes for a while. Let's, let's do some... Let's do some standard jokes, shall we? Starting with, a drunk man is stumbling through the woods. He's totally soused when he comes upon a preacher baptizing people in the river. He walks into the water and bumps into the preacher. The preacher turns around and is almost overcome with the smell of alcohol, whereupon he grabs the drunk and says, are you ready to find Jesus? <laughs> drunk says, yes, I am. The preacher grabs him and dunks him under the water. He pulls up and asks him, brother, have you found Jesus? Drunk replies, no, I haven't. The preacher is somewhat shocked at the answer and dunks him in the water again. He pulls him out and says, My brother, have you found Jesus? Drunk again answers, No, I have not found Jesus. The preacher is feeling a bit at wit's end, so he dunks the drunk in the water again, holds him down for about 30 seconds. The guy begins kicking and kicking his arms and legs, so he pulls him back up. Preacher asks for the last time, For the love of God, brother, have you found Jesus? The drunk coughs, catches his breath, and says, Are you sure this is where he fell in? All right, how about this one? You're trapped in a room with a hungry tiger, a cobra, and a lawyer. You have a gun, but it only has two bullets. What should you do? The answer, of course, shoot the lawyer twice. 
And finally, speaking of lawyers, a guy phones his law firm and says, I want to speak to my lawyer. The receptionist says, I'm sorry, sir, but your lawyer died last week. The next day, the man phones the law firm again and says, I want to speak to my lawyer. Once again, the receptionist replies, I'm sorry, sir, but your lawyer died last week. Third day, the guy makes a call to the firm and says, I want to speak to my lawyer. Receptionist says, excuse me, this is the third time I've had to tell you that your lawyer died last week. Why do you keep calling? Guy says, because I just love hearing it. Our stat of the day is that for the third year in a row, San Pedro Sola Honduras is the world's most dangerous city. According to the Mexican think tank Civil Council for Public Safety and Criminal Justice, San Pedro Sola leads the globe with 187 homicides per 100,000 residents. This is partly because a crackdown on drug cartels in Mexico has pushed some of the drug trade into Honduras. By the way, 41 of the world's top 50 most murder-prone cities are in Latin America. Leading the rest of the top five, Caracas, Acapulco, Cali, Colombia, and Maceo, Brazil. Yikes. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for defying authority after a federal judge ruled that drivers have a First Amendment right to flash their headlights to warn other motorists of police speed traps. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for innovation after the Reverend Isaac Kramer, head of the International Catholic Association of Exorcists, which, to borrow a quote from the David Letterman show's Flunky, the late-night viewer mail clown. We would note that's a real powerful organization, the International Catholic Association of Exorcists. At any rate, they've condemned an Arizona pastor for performing internet exorcisms via Skype, which, frankly, we at Radio Parallax were, were unaware was a problem. But said the Reverend Kramer, in criticism, it's like trying to perform a baptism on someone through the telephone. Well, this reminds me of the time they busted one of those uh, late-night TV channels that were offering psychic advice on a 1-800 line. I remember commenting on that story to a friend many years back and saying, you know, and the worst thing about it is they weren't even using real psychics. Of course, the even worse part about it was her response was, really? Well, let's do a couple news stories from around the world, in this case, Latin America, which you were just talking about. Apparently down in El Salvador... Salvador Sanchez Seren, who, who commanded Marxist guerrillas during the country's bloody civil war, secured 49% of the vote in last week's presidential election, giving his left-leaning Farabundo Marti National Liberation Front Party an edge heading into the March 9th runoff. Perhaps the voters in El Salvador want to take a look at Zimbabwe and Cuba to see how well things turn out when you put Marxists in head of, as head of the government. Of course, we do want to add that the opinion that Marxists make lousy chiefs of state is an opinion that is ours alone and does not necessarily represent the views of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. And at the same time, we're pretty sure they wouldn't take issue with that particular contention. But I don't know. All right, here's an item from Argentina. Stop me if you've heard this one. 
The collapse of the Argentine peso has led to sharp price increases and bare store shelves across the country in recent weeks, and many Argentines are growing frustrated over President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner's refusal to address the crisis head-on. Now, every so often, it seems that Brazil and Argentina get a new currency, and then they set about debasing it. The money goes down to being pretty much valueless, then they start over again. Why does this happen? If you're an economist with insights as to why Latin American governments keep trashing their monetary systems, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. Over the years, this correspondent has collected paper money from various countries he's visited and made a display out of it. And uh, I think that some of the money I have from Latin America is about three currencies ago at this point. I've got some money from Brazil where they, they basically stamped on the note that it was no longer 100000 cruzados or whatever it was, it was now a hundred. It was now one one thousandth the value of the new cruzado or whatever. And speaking of money matters, how about these items? According to an analysis based on airline data, carriers expended about two dollars worth of jet fuel to transport a piece of luggage that they typically charge twenty-five dollars to check. Since 2008, U.S. airlines have made nearly $18 billion in baggage fees alone. All right, and some potentially bad news for James Bond. It was revealed that Aston Martin owners may need to head back to the showroom. Evidently, the British car manufacturer has recalled almost 18,000 cars, which represents 75% of the cars it's built since 2008 after discovering that a Chinese supplier had used fake materials in its car's accelerator pedals. The supplier had reportedly used plastic that was, quote, not of industrial quality, unquote, in manufacturing the part, making it more liable to break. All right, here's a couple of not-so-pleasant items I think we nevertheless need to take a look at. Item I've been sitting on since the December 29th edition of the Sacramento Bee which is a reprint of a Washington Post piece by Peter Wariski and Dan Keating. The headline is, Longer Living Patients Boost Hospice Profits. The subheadline is, Industry Led by Four Profit Companies Now. Perhaps you find this shocking, dear listener. I did. Notes the piece. Hospice patients are expected to die. The treatment focuses on providing comfort to the terminally ill, not finding a cure. To enroll a patient, two doctors certify a life expectancy of six months or less. But over the past decade, the number of hospice survivors, in quotes, in the U.S. has risen dramatically, in part because hospice companies earn more by recruiting patients who aren't actually dying. This comes from a Washington Post investigation. Healthier patients are more profitable because they require fewer visits and stay enrolled longer. The proportion of patients who were discharged alive from hospice care rose about 50% between 2002 and 2012, according to the Post. The study focused on California, where we make public detailed descriptions of what's going on in hospice, and the study was based largely over records from California, where we make public detailed descriptions of what's going on in hospice, it was noted that the average length of stay in hospice care jumped substantially between 2002 and 2012, while profits per patient quintupled. Peace goes on to note that this vast growth took place as the hospice movement, once led by religious and community organizations, was evolving into a $17 billion a year industry dominated by for-profit companies. Much of that is paid for by the U.S. government. 
Roughly $15 billion of indice revenue came from Medicare. At Care, for example, one of the nation's largest for-profit chains, hospice patients kept on living. About 78% of patients who enrolled at the Mobile Alabama branch left the hospice's care still alive. The piece goes on to note that the survival rates at Care are emblematic of a problem facing Medicare, which has created a financial incentive for hospice companies to find patients well before death. Medicare pays a hospice about $150 a day per patient for routine care, regardless of whether the company sends out a nurse or any other worker. That means healthier patients who generally need less help and live longer yield more profit. And naturally, the trend toward longer stays in hospice care may be costing Medicare billions of dollars a year. In 2011, nearly 60% of Medicare's hospice expenditures of $13.8 billion went toward patients who stay on hospice care longer than six months. The piece notes that some of those patients simply outlived a legitimate prognosis of six months. But much of the data suggests that the trend toward longer stays is a response to the financial incentive. Consider the difference between a nonprofit and for-profit hospice. The average nonprofit serves a patient for 69 days. The average for-profit hospice serves a patient for an average of 102 days. Moreover, notes this piece in the Washington Post, multiple allegations have arisen from former hospice workers who say that the businesses took in people who weren't in declining health. Four of the ten largest hospice companies in the U.S., including AstraCare, have been sued by whistleblowers alleging that patients were receiving care they didn't need. Notes the article a little further down. At Odyssey Healthcare, one of the nation's largest hospice companies, Representatives earned bonuses if they met their goals for new patients. It was according to a uh, a legal case, I guess, which led to a $25 million settlement with the company. They go on. At Vitus, a company of ChemEd that also owns the Roto-Rooter Plumbing Service, the corporate culture encouraged staff members to admit as many patients as possible, regardless of whether they were eligible for hospice care. That's according to another lawsuit. That suit said the company paid bonuses based on the number of patients enrolled. One former manager said the company philosophy was, sign everybody up, and medical staffers felt pressure to admit patients regardless of whether they were appropriate. An Angels of Hope hospice in LaGrange, Georgia, audio recording cited in the complaint described how some salespeople found patients by cruising neighborhoods looking for elderly people with disabilities. Anyway, to close up here, the piece notes that Medicare began paying for hospice care in 1983. The government benefit, while costly in itself, promised other compensating savings for Medicare. Patients would be choosing home care rather than expensive end-of-life medical treatment. The treatment of a hospice patient typically focused on treating pain and symptoms rather than grasping at a cure. The benefit was quickly embraced by Americans and continues to grow, with Medicare paying for hospice care for more than 1.2 million people annually. Back in 2000, Medicare spent $2.9 billion on, on the hospice benefit. Twelve years later, that figure had risen fivefold to $15.1 billion. Notes the piece, as more Americans have taken up hospice care, a profound change has been underway. Big businesses have moved in. It's noted that back in 2000, 70% of hospices were run by non-profit organizations or government agencies. Today, nearly 60% are for-profit companies, and they may account for an even larger share of patients. I'm rather perturbed by this piece, and I think we'll have to reflect on it more in the future after I've digested it a bit. 
All right, someone whom we find more easy to digest is our good pal, Mr. Will Durst. Hey, guys. Will Durst here with a few words of sympathy for the very rich. It seems as if our wealthy brothers and sisters are going through some tough times. Not financially. No, no, no. They're doing very good on that end. Last year, the stock market rose higher than 420 at a Denver dispensary on Jerry Garcia's birthday. Oh, they're comfortable, all right, but becoming slightly uncomfortable, if you catch my drift. It's us nasty poor people, again. It seems we're picking on them. You know, whining, complaining, hungry rather than pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps like they did when their daddy left them all that money. Cries of inequality have grown so loud that venture capitalist Tom Perkins was compelled to compare the poor to the Nazis. He said that Germany's 1% were the Jews and America's 1% are the well-heeled. And he did it in a letter to the Wall Street Journal. Well, of course he did. I mean, where do you think he got it published? Progressive magazine? Apparently, affluence causes your skin to grow thin. We have created an entire upper class that are extra sensitive to the slings and arrows tossed at their outrageous fortune. Many malcontents call for the man to have his analogy completed by tattooing a serial number onto his arm. But in America, that anti-rich stuff doesn't really fly because most people are afraid that any restrictions on the loaded and bloated will come back to haunt them when their ship comes in and they start rolling in it. Then again, a recent study determined that 85 people in the world now control the same amount of wealth as half the population of the planet. 85 people have as much money as $3.5 billion. Just wondering, can a run on guillotines be far away? For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. All right, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. When we come back, we'll talk about UC Davis's venerated newspaper, the California Aggie. <laughs> 